The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, good morning, Bethlehem. It is a joy to be with you. I've been looking forward to preaching uh, since Stephen reached out to me back in October. Uh, And when I read my text last week, I thought, boy, maybe I should have started preparing back in October. So after reading, I think, what else do we need to hear? Let's just go home. That was clear enough. But we know this. We've, We've experienced good, haven't we, from this book of Daniel. This book of Daniel has been good for us. It's the first time I've actually ever heard a sermon series all the way through. I don't know if that's true for you. In fact, I'm curious. Anybody else the first time this, you've ever heard preaching through the entire book of Daniel? Come on, look around at those hands. So this is the part of Daniel most preachers we stop at. We go to chapter 6. We say, thank you very much. Let's go back to someplace a little more straightforward. But there is good for us today. And I'm eager for us to see it. So make sure you've got your Bibles open. I'd maybe have a pen or a pencil or something to take notes. I'm going to give you a couple of things to jot down, maybe even the, in the margin of your text, that will help you the next time you come through this part of your Bible. But I kind of feel like before we do any of this, let's ask the Lord for His help, both to help you and to help me understand and appreciate and appropriate what God has said to us. So would you pray with me this morning? Lord, here we are doing what we do every week. We come to you and we are hungry. We want to be fed from your word. We know we can't be sustained without spiritual food. And you have told us that every part of the Bible is full of profit. There is nutrition, there's nourishment, there's goodness in every single page, on every single page of the Bible. We believe that. We believe that. We confess that to you, Father. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would energize the teaching, the preaching of your word this morning. Energize the listening to your word of your people. God, open the eyes of any who may have come in here today, and they are a stranger to the Lord Jesus. May they see in Daniel 11 the goodness of God. We beg you for this. We, we enter this room, Father, expecting you to be generous because you have been generous to us our entire lives. So do once again that thing you do every week and feed your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's what I want us to do this morning. Here's how I want us to see what Daniel 11 is for us, we're going to take two steps. Two steps. Pretty simple outline. Our first step is, I want us to see the truth that God shows Daniel from God's book of truth. I want us to see that. In fact, very specifically, I want us to see nine things that God shows Daniel. That's step number one. Don't, don't get worried by that nine. We'll move pretty fast. That's the first step. Nine things God shows Daniel. And then the second step, our second move after we see these nine things, I want us to see two things that God shows us. Two things that God shows us in this text that I don't think we want to miss. In fact, this week I read a statement from an author and he said this. See how you feel about this. 
He said, this chapter, this is what he said, this chapter might be treated in Bible classes. We do not see, this is what he said, we do not see how it could be used in sermons or in a sermon. I respectfully disagree. I think there is good for us in this part of our Bible, just like there is everywhere else. And I think we don't want to miss it. So our second step, we're going to look at what God shows us from this wonderful text. So two steps. Let me begin with the first. Nine things God shows Daniel. That's our first step. All of Daniel 11 is straight from God's book of truth. You remember, that's how the angel describes what he's reading to Daniel from in the introduction to our vision in chapter 10. In fact, take a look at chapter 10, verse 21. The angel tells Daniel, but I will tell you, this is the angel, I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. And then same thing, look at 11, verse 2. Right at the beginning of our passage, the angel says, now I will show you the truth. Now what follows what we read in Daniel 11 is a vision or a revelation about the future. That's the part of the book of truth that the angel reveals to Daniel. And it's a future that we've actually already seen on at least three occasions. It's the same future that God showed Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. It's the same future that God showed Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. Friends, it's the same future that God showed Daniel again in Daniel chapter 8. We've been over this territory before. We've seen these things. It's a future that God shows Daniel that's actually divided into four ages or four kingdoms. First is the Babylonian kingdom. You know what's next? What's after Babylon? You can say it's all right. Persia, Medo-Persia, Persia. Then third is Greece. And fourth is... Well, we, yeah, we sort of know we don't know. It's an unnamed kingdom that is after Greece and kind of is mysterious and beastly and iron-clawed and tin-horned. And it comes after Greece and it extends to the end of the world. And Daniel, the author of our book, Daniel, he lives, or at least he lived most of his life during that first kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon. And he lived, he was alive when God's prophecy about the destruction of Babylon uh, was fulfilled. Daniel was there, remember, saw the writing on the wall the very night that God kind of crashed Babylon's party, and then he was alive during the Persian period. That's where we are. Daniel is alive during that second kingdom, the kingdom of Persia. Now, if you wanted to put this on a timeline, we're looking at about 537 B.C., So chapter 10, verse 1, 11, verse 1, when you kind of work those together, we're in the third year of Cyrus, which is to say Darius's reign, which is 537 B.C. And what's interesting is Daniel, God's going to show Daniel from this book of truth. He's going to show him from 537 B.C. all the way to 175 B.C. It's going to show him almost 400 years into the future. He's going to show him to the death of a Greek king named Seleucus IV. And we see that in verse 20. You don't need to remember that right now. I'm just telling you that's the time stamp. 
Daniel 11, verse 20, where we'll end today, happened in 175 B.C. So God's giving Daniel a vision of the future of almost 400 years into his future. I was trying to think of an analogy that might help us this week. See if this helps. If you grew up in the 90s, this might be useful for you. If not, just humor me, all right? So think of Miles Standish or William Bradford. They weren't in the 90s. You know who these guys are? (laughs) They were Mayflower Pilgrims, kind of the two of the more famous ones. Miles Standish and William Bradford. They crossed the Atlantic to the New World back in 1620. So what God shows Daniel here in Daniel chapter 11 would be like Miles Standish or William Bradford sitting with you. How you got there, let's not worry about that. But sitting with you on the deck of the Mayflower over tea and biscuits in the afternoon and telling you about a rivalry that would take place all the way in the future in the 1980s and 1990s between, you guessed it, the Chicago Bulls and the Detroit Pistons. I don't know why they're talking about that, but that's what they're talking to you about on the deck of the Mayflower. And they're looking into the future, telling you about people that don't yet exist, telling you about cities that don't yet exist, telling you about a sport that doesn't yet exist. They're looking and they're telling you this is what's going to happen. The Bulls and the Pistons are going to battle back and forth. But it's actually even more interesting than that. You probably heard, as Joshua read, this text isn't some kind of vague schematic of the future. There were a lot of details, weren't there? Lots of details. So it's almost like Miles and William are telling you, wait, there's more. It's not just Bulls versus Pistons, but did you know in 1991, you say, okay, I'll I'll go with you here. In 1991, the Bulls would finally beat the Pistons. Now, I don't want cheering now. Those are my bad boys, okay? The Bulls would finally beat the Pistons. A guy named Michael Jordan would average 31.2 points. And you won't believe this, Miles turns to you and says. You won't believe this. But in game four, when the Bulls finally beat the Pistons, you know what the Pistons did? You guys may remember what the Pistons said. They walked off the court before the game was even over. Didn't shake anybody's hands and just walked right off. Daniel 11 is like that. It's that specific. It's guys telling you, it's the Lord telling you, this is what 400 years into the future looks like. And he's very specific about it. In fact, friends, Daniel 11 is the most detailed prophecy in the entire Old Testament. We don't get anything else like this. It's the most specific, the most detailed, the most thorough prophecy in the entire Old Testament. There's nothing like it. That's what God tells Daniel from this book of truth. He says, Daniel, I want to tell you about these chapters in my book of truth. And as I've said, God shows Daniel nine things. Here's the first. I'll keep them short. Persia will attack Greece. Maybe you want to write this in the margin of verse 2. Persia will attack Greece. That's the first thing God shows Daniel. Look at verse 2. 
Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. That's verse 2. Persia will attack Greece. This rich fourth king may refer to Xerxes. And that's a name you should be familiar with. Xerxes is the king at the center of the book of Esther. Really fabulously wealthy king. This may refer to Xerxes who attacked Greece in 480 B.C. and actually burned Athens to the ground. Persia, that's the first thing God shows Daniel. Daniel, I want you to see this. Persia's going to attack Greece. Second. Second thing God tells Daniel. Alexander will be great. Alexander will be great. Look at verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. We know this mighty king is Alexander the Great because his is the next kingdom after Persia. God's saying, look, Daniel, Persia, that thing, that kingdom that you're in the midst of, I'm going to give it one verse of coverage and then it's going to be out of my mind. I want to talk about Greece. Greece comes next. God says, Alexander, this first king of Greece will be great. His is the third kingdom according to Daniel's timeline of the future. Now, we also know this mighty king is Alexander because of what the next prediction says. Third, the third thing God shows Daniel, Alexander's kingdom will be divided by four. That's verse four. Alexander's kingdom is going to be divided by four. God tells Daniel this. And don't miss the specific details. Look at verse four with me. And as soon as he has arisen... His kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. But not to his posterity, not according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Alexander's conquests lasted only 10 years. And young Alexander died a lot earlier than he would have liked. He died at the age of 32 and his kingdom, his empire, which was vast. His kingdom, his empire was divided amongst his four generals. Or as the angel tells Daniel, verse 4, it was divided towards the four winds of heaven. We know this from history. His kingdom was divided amongst his four generals. Now, after verse 4, After this kind of brief little picture of Persia, a little note about Alexander the Great, and this introduction that Alexander's empire would be divided by four, the rest of Daniel's vision that we're going to look at today from verses 5 to 20, the rest of it focuses on just two of Alexander's generals. So we got Persia off the way. Greece divided by four. We're not going to think about two of the generals. We're just going to focus on two others, two very specific ones. It focuses on the general who ruled Syria. Modern day where Damascus is, it focuses on a general who rules in Syria. His name was Seleucus. 
And his dynasty was called the Seleucid dynasty. There's not going to be a quiz after, I promise. If you're in our New Testament classes, there would be a quiz. We've got some graduates here who have passed through all of those. Amen. All right. So it's going to be the Seleucid dynasty up in Syria. That's one of the generals, the general who rules in Syria. The other general of Alexander's who's going to get focused on that we read about is the general who rules in Egypt. His name is Ptolemy. That's P-T-O-L-E-M-Y, Ptolemy. He rules in Egypt, and his dynasty is called the Ptolemaic dynasty. It's a silent P, just to make things even more interesting today. So, do you know what's between Syria and Egypt? Think of it on a map if you can. Syria's up here. We've got Mediterranean. Am I doing? Yep, Mediterranean. We got Egypt down here. Do you know what's between those two? Say it. Israel's between them. That's right. Daniel's people are between these two generals. Syria is to the north of Israel. Egypt is to the south, which is why the angel talks so much about the kings of the north and the kings of the south. We're talking about kings that are bordering God's people. This is God's people-focused history. That's why we're focusing on these two generals. The angel's vision focuses on the destiny, the fate of God's people. All right. Three predictions down, six to go, and these get really specific. So hold on. Fourth. Fourth thing God tells Daniel. God tells Daniel, verse 5, the north will be bigger and stronger at first. The north, this is the fourth thing God chose Daniel. The north will be bigger and stronger at first. Look at verse 5. Then the king of the south shall be strong. Remember, that's the Ptolemaic dynasty. That's down in Egypt. The king of the south shall be strong. But one of his princes, this is Alexander's general Seleucus, the, the guy who would go on, as we see, shall be stronger than he, stronger than the king of the south, and he shall rule. Seleucus I, verse 4 is telling us, will rule over Syria, and he's going to occupy the biggest section of Alexander's dynasty. God tells Daniel, I want you to know this in advance, in verse 4, that Alexander's dynasty is going to be split up, and the guy who gets the big piece of the pie, his name's Seleucus. He's the prince of the king of the south, who's going to be bigger and stronger at first. All right. Fifth. Fifth thing God tells Daniel. Verse 6. A north-south alliance will be stopped. Verse 6. Verse 6. This is the fifth thing God shows Daniel. A north-south alliance will be stopped. All right, let's look at verse 6. After some years... They, that is the north and south kings, they shall make an alliance, make an agreement. And the daughter of the king of the south, her name is Berenice. She's going to come to the king of the north and make an agreement. Here's what the agreement was. I'll marry you, king of the north. We'll have a child and he shall rule over the north and south kingdoms and we'll make peace between the north and the south. 
They make an agreement through marriage, which is often how it happened. Berenice goes to the north. Let's get married. We'll have a child and our child will rule over both of these dynasties. But look what happens. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm. And he, that's her new husband, the king of the north, and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up and her attendants. He who followed, fathered her, her dad, and he who supported her in those times. Here's what's going on. The king of the north who marries the king of the south's daughter. He sends her up. Marry him, king of the north. Got it. Okay. Berenice goes up and marries him. The trouble was the king of the north, you know what? He was already married. And his first wife wasn't so happy about this southern bride coming up and marrying her husband. So you know what she does? She poisons him. Her husband, the king of the north. She poisons this bride from the south and she poisons their child who was destined to bring peace between the two kingdoms. She poisons all three. Or as the angel puts it in our texts, the strength of their arms will not endure. That's what God's telling us through Daniel. God wants Daniel to see this. And don't miss the frustrated plans of these kings. This was not exactly what they had hoped would happen with this marriage alliance. All right, sixth. Sixth. Sixth thing God shows Daniel. The south will retaliate. Sixth, the south will retaliate. This is verses 7 and 8. Let's look at them. The south is going to retaliate. They're not going to like the fact that you just killed our treaty bride, our agreement bride. Okay, what happens? Verse 7. And from a branch, from her roots, one shall arise in his place. That is a branch from Berenice's roots, the southern bride, a branch, somebody else, a relative, will arise. Her brother, a new king of the south, and he's going to come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. And he, this king of the south, shall deal with them and shall prevail. And verse 8, look at verse 8. And he, this king of the south that's gone up and exacted vengeance, he shall also carry off to Egypt, so back home, their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years, he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. So this successful king of the south, Berenice's brother, History knows him as Ptolemy III. When he takes all this plunder with him, as verse 8 describes, and he takes it all the way back to his people in Egypt, you know what they do? They give him a nickname. They give him the nickname, you learn a little Greek, Euergetes, which means benefactor. You're our benefactor. That's how history knows this man. And they know him that way because of what God said he would do 300 years before it ever happened. God knew this man's nickname and the reason for it 300 years before it ever even happened. He will be your benefactor, this guy you don't even know, doing something you can't even imagine. All right, seventh. Seventh thing God tells Daniel. The north will retaliate. You kind of get the movement of the text. Kind of north versus south, back and forth. Battles, frustrated plans, back and forth. So seventh. 
the north will retaliate. This is verses 9 and 10. Then the latter, that's the king of the north, he's going to be frustrated, he just lost. He'll come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons, however, shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces. This is verse 10. And these multitude of great forces shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. We're talking about Egypt. The north is going to retaliate. The king's sons will continue their father's campaigns and they'll go and battle down in Egypt, all the way to Egypt itself. Notice the angel predicts that this king of the north will have sons, not just a son, but sons, plural. Verse 10, who will carry on their father's campaigns. This precisely aligns with what we know of this king from history, whose two sons, they co-ruled at the same time for about three years until the first son dies. And his second son, the, second, the other brother, then rules Syria alone. And his name will be one you want to remember. This is Antiochus III, like Antioch with an U.S. on the end. U.S. It's like speaking Greek or something up here. Antiochus III. History knows him as Antiochus the Great. And the rest of our passage this morning is about this guy, Antiochus the Great this son of the king of the north who carries on his father's campaigns. All right, eighth. Eighth thing God shows Daniel. Eighth, the the south will make a final stand. The south, it's going to make a final stand. We see this in verses 11 and 12. Let's look at those. Then the king of the south moved with rage shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he, that's Antiochus the Great, this king of the north, he shall raise a great multitude. But it, this multitude, shall be given into his hand, that is, into the hand of the king of the south. And when the multitude is taken away, when the king of the south wins this big victory, his heart, It's going to be exalted and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. Or if you've got an NIV this morning, he won't remain triumphant. Again, don't miss the frustrated plans. King of the south wants to do things. King of the north wants to, but at every turn, but not yet. No, this doesn't work out like you wanted it to. Frustrated plans all over the place. Antiochus doesn't plan to lose. And the king of the south planned to prevail and to continue prevailing. But each can only do as much as God allows them to. It was interesting as I read about this eighth one this week. I had to do a little bit of reading myself. What's going on here? Lord, help me. And as I read about this uh, battle here in verse 11, this was known to history as the Battle of Raphia. And in this battle, what I thought was cool, kids, you'll like this. They used war elephants. So big old elephants from India fought with the north and slightly smaller ones from the kind of the river regions of Africa fought with the south. And there were uh, elephants battling each other like ancient versions of tanks. Although that would have been pretty cool to see, wouldn't it? 
So that's the eighth prediction. Let's look at the ninth. Finally. Ninth. God says to Daniel, Daniel, I want you to know this. The north will dominate. That's what God says, this final prediction. And this covers the entirety of verses 13 to 20. The north will dominate. So let's look at it. Verse 13. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. Bigger than the one he raised in verse 11. And after some years, he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. Verse 14. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south. And the violent among your own people. First time we've seen these guys, Israel. The violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision. But they shall fail. And we wonder whether Daniel's vision encouraged some within Israel to sort of kind of force history's hand. We don't know. Then the king, this is verse 15, then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works And take a well-fortified city, likely a reference to Sidon, up on the north of Israel on the Mediterranean coast. He'll take a well-fortified city, this king of the north, and the forces of the south shall not stand. Or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. Verse 16. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills. Antiochus III, Antiochus the Great, will dominate. And none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land. It's Israel. It's how Daniel's contemporary Ezekiel refers to Israel. The glorious, the beautiful land flowing with milk and honey. Antiochus III shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. Verse 17. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him, that's the king of the south, the king of the north shall give him, the king of the south, the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom. But this little maneuver, political maneuver, this political marriage, it won't stand or be to his advantage. This is what happened. Antiochus the Great gives his daughter, king of the north, now it's his turn. He gives his daughter to the king of the south, hoping that she'll kind of insinuate herself into the kingdom and turn things in her dad's favor. But you know what? She was more loyal, history tells us, to her husband than she was to her dad. Her name was Cleopatra, Cleopatra the first, not the, the seventh is the one we all, most of us know about. This is the first. But I guess that's where that name came into Egyptian history. I don't know if that's true or not. So don't, don't write that in your notes. All right, verse 18. Afterwards, he, that's Antiochus the Great, the king of the north, he's going to turn his face to the coastlands. He's going to capture many of them, but... A commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he, this commander, shall turn his insolence back upon him. It's talking about a Roman general named Scipio. Roman general Scipio 
did this to Antiochus the Great at the famous battles of Thermopylae and Magnesia in 190 B.C. That's a lot of details. What you need to know is God predicted that in advance, every single part of it. Scipio turns back Antiochus the Great, says no further Antiochus, and part of the truce agreements between Antiochus and these Roman upstarts was that the Greeks, Antiochus, would have to pay the Romans a lot of money, tribute, heavy taxation, which explains then what we read in verse 19. Look at verse 19. Then he, this frustrated Antiochus the Great, shall turn his face back towards the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. History tells us that Antiochus returned home, having been frustrated by the Romans, and went into a foreign temple, likely to take its money so he could pay his taxes to Rome. And a giant mob said, we don't like that you're doing that. And they killed Antiochus the Great right there. This was in the city of Susa. Don't come into our temple. We'll kill you. And they did. Now verse 20. Then in Antiochus's place, so then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute tax collector for the glory of the kingdom. That is to say, he'll raise tribute that the Seleucid kingdom, this kingdom of the north, now owes to Rome thanks to Antiochus. He'll send an exactor of tribute, but notice, within a few days, he shall be broken. Antiochus's son after a few days in office, a short time in office, is broken, but neither in anger nor in battle. Don't miss the specificity of that. God put that in the Bible for a reason. He's predicting something very specific. He's not going to be broken, killed in anger nor in battle. What does that mean? He won't be killed like his dad was by an angry mob. And he's not going to be killed fighting glorious battles. Rather, history tells us that this son of Antiochus the Great was poisoned. Not killed in anger by a mob, neither killed in battle. Rather, God is very specific. I know how he's going to die. It's in my book. Daniel, look at this. He's going to be killed in another way. And the brother of the poisoned son, Antiochus the Fourth, will be the subject of of our passage next week that Pastor John's going to talk about. And he is a bad dude. We'll talk about him next week. All right. You did it. That's nine. Preschoolers, if you're still with me, I'm proud of you. Okay? All right. Let me finish by saying two things. Two things that God shows us. You, you, you hear this. You hear these nine things. And if you're sort of cognizant, if you're sentient, you're wondering, okay, what do I do with all this? I like history. I do. You probably do too. I like it, but there's got to be something else here for us. God, what do you have for us? What's the good, the profit, the benefit of including this in our Bibles? I think there's two things. Two things God wants to show us. So when I was in grad school... Uh, my, we had just had my second son, and he got really, really sick. 
Uh, it was pretty scary. Okay, it was really scary. Uh, absolutely scary. He had, in the hospital, breathing tube, tubes, and the whole deal. And I remember a friend at school uh, kind of telling him, I'm, I'm pretty anxious, I'm worried. And he looked me in the face and told me words that I, I have not forgotten. They, they, they meant something to me. At first, I, I heard him, but now, now, as years went by, I thought, that's exactly right. He said, Jared, don't forget, I know you know God is sovereign. I did. I knew God was all-powerful. But he said, don't forget, he is also very good. He said, look, God is sovereign. Don't, don't fail to forget that. But don't overlook the fact that God is also very, very good. God is great, friends, but he is also good. And I think this is a nice summary of what this text contributes to us this morning. If you wonder, what am I to make of this strange and very detailed vision? Here's the answer. Two things. First, God is for us. Second, God is never frustrated. God is for us. I want you to hear that. Second, God is never frustrated. God is for you. You say, where do I see that? We see this in the frame of our passage. In the frame of this vision that we've just looked at. Look at verse 2. The angel, God's angel sent to Daniel, tells him, chapter 11, verse 2, and now I will show you the truth. And I'm saying, there it is, friends. God is for you. And the evidence I'm giving for you is verse 2 of chapter 11. God is for you. He's good. Why do I say that based on verse 2? Do you remember why God sends his angel to read to Daniel from the book of truth? Do you remember this? Daniel's mourning. He's crying. He's wondering, God, where are you in this world? What's going on with the exiles who have returned? And God says, God gives Daniel a word. He sends his angel to him. And Daniel is described twice. We're given the reason. Daniel 10.10, Daniel 10.19. We're told Daniel, do you remember this? Daniel is greatly loved. You say, God, why would you do this? You just snatched an angel who was doing some productive battling and you sent him to your servant Daniel. I think you need him there. And God says, no, I'm going to send him to Daniel. I see Daniel's tears. I hear his prayers. I'm going to send him to him and I'm going to give Daniel exactly what he needs. I'm going to read from this book of truth the precise chapters that Daniel needs to hear to encourage his mourning, sad, despondent heart. I'm telling you, God is for us and it's evidenced by how God treats Daniel. Because those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus, what God says about Daniel, he's greatly loved. Do you know this? He says that about you. If you know and love the Lord Jesus, friends, you are greatly loved. You say, how do I know this? I say, Daniel 11 proves it to you. Daniel 11 proves it to you. God knows what his people need, and he's giving us an example of how he meets the needs of his people. Daniel's praying, God, where are you? God says, I got you, Daniel. I got you. I know what you need. And he says, angel, go. Go tell my beloved son, Daniel. Go tell him that I want to encourage him and tell him these specific things. Those will lift up his heart. Go do this now. Go, angel. Go minister to my son who I love. And I'm telling you that same God 
loves you and knows exactly what you need, demonstrated profoundly in his giving of the greatest gift, and it's not Daniel 11, the greatest gift he's ever given you is the death of his son, beloved son, Jesus. If you wonder, and we do, don't we? God, do you love me? I don't feel it. You feel distant. The world seems upside down. You, you feel like you're silent. Let Daniel 11 put that out of your mind. Let Jesus, what God has done in the cross, put that out of your mind. There you go. There's two witnesses. And in the mouth of two witnesses, a matter stands, right? That's what the Bible says. We got two witnesses. So I'm commending Daniel 11 to you as one more proof that your God, friends, is for you. He knows what you need and he gives it to you. That's the first thing. Second is this. We saw the forness. Is that even a word? No, it's not. We saw God's for you in the frame of Daniel 11. Now we see the second, God is never frustrated in the focus of Daniel 11. Don't miss this. We're going to end with this. Friends, God is never frustrated. He is oh so good, but he's not just good and impotent. He is good and omnipotent. Daniel 11, this vision, focuses on the fact that God's enemies, these kings, are forever frustrated. Did you see that? If you were to underline the buts, B-U-T, the contrast in this text, you'd underline at least 13 of them. King A wants to do X, but no. Antiochus wants to do this. No. Uh, They want to make this agreement. It's not going to work. Everybody is frustrated. Xerxes is frustrated. Alexander dies before he wants to. Seleucus is frustrated. Ptolemy, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, is frustrated. All of them, they're frustrated. But you know what? You know who's never frustrated? God is never frustrated. He's never frustrated. That's why there's so much detail in this text. Guys, this was 400 years into Daniel's future. It is 2,000 years in our past. And every single detail that God foretold has come to pass exactly as God said it would. He's never frustrated. That's the point. Yes, these kings, they will rage and foam. Sure, they are on a leash and their bark will only be as loud. Their bite will only be as painful as I allow it to be. And then they're done. And I, my plans are never frustrated, God says. So, friends, the title, this is, this is helpful. The title of God's book isn't what God hopes will happen. Hey, angel, go read to Daniel from the book of I hope it happens or the book of this is what I'd like to happen. What's it called? It's called the book of truth because everything God says will happen will happen. He will never be frustrated. Let Daniel 11 be one more tie that binds your heart to the rock of ages who loves you and who is supremely powerful far beyond you could, you're ever able to imagine. All right, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this amazing part of our Bibles. You and your infinite wisdom have gifted this to us. And we want to squeeze out of it all of the nourishment, the goodness, the nutrition that you've intended for us to take from it. We leave here reminded of, reaffirmed in your goodness. 
your posture towards your children is one of love. And we're reminded also what we've been reminded of all of Daniel, that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are good and you are oh so very great. And we give you glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.